Hello, my name is Chase Jacobs. I'm the Minister of Theological Training here at Desert Springs Church Family. I'm sad yet again that we can't see one another face to face, but I am grateful that we have this opportunity to unite together around God's Word. And for those of you who are not part of our church, we're glad that you've taken time to watch this service and that we, we hope that you're blessed by it. I would say if you'd like more information about our church, maybe about how you could become a member here or what it is that we believe about Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to connect with us through our website, dscabq.com. We'd love to help you in any way that we can. During this time as a church, we've been praying that God would use our church family in a way that demonstrates his grace and love to our neighbors. And we've already heard so many encouraging stories from so many of you about how you're doing just that, how you're using this time as hard as it is as an opportunity to share the gospel with people that are in your life, to be intentional about relationships that you have, and to creatively meet the needs of people around you. One thing that I'm especially happy to share with you is an update about how God has used our partnership with Los Ranchos Elementary in this time. It's a school that's just a few minutes away from our church. In God's providence, we've already had a good relationship with this church. And as soon as this crisis hits, we reached out to that church community and actually sat down with the principal and said, we as a church want to be here for you in whatever way that we can. And after that meeting, that principal went and he emailed every family in that school and let them know that Desert Springs was there for them. And we have been. We have been. So many of you have stepped up and, and helped in meaningful ways, most significantly by providing food for families that have been impacted by this crisis. A, a number of you have already given food to families that need it, and so many of those families have expressed the, the gratitude, the love that they have felt from us. And we just say to that, we have freely received from Jesus Christ, and so we freely give. And let's continue, church, to freely give. As long as it takes, as long as this crisis is going on, we want to be providing meals for these families in our community. So what we're going to be doing is every Tuesday from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m., there will be boxes outside the front door of our church, and you can place food staples in those boxes. They don't even need to be non-perishable because that food is not sitting on shelves. It is going directly from there to families in our community that need it. So every Tuesday morning, 9 a.m. to 11 a.m., you can drop off your food there and we will see to it that it meets the needs of our neighbors. And if you would like more information about what we're doing with Los Ranchos, if you would like to help in some other ways, I would encourage you to email our missions minister, Josiah, at josiah at dscabq.com. And church, I would just ask that you would pray for this ministry, pray for this opportunity, pray that we would love our neighbors well and that, that God would meet their needs, most of all, their spiritual needs. So with that, let's pray that God would use our love and our good works to glorify our Father in heaven. And let's pray that he uses this time to that same end. Let's pray. God, we thank you that we do have this time to gather together and hear from you through singing, through prayer, and through your word. Lord, I pray that you would bless us, that you would strengthen us, that you would build us up, that you would make us a people that glorifies you and that holds fast to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ who has met 
every need for us and given us everything that we need for life and godliness. In his name we pray, amen. Hear from Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Now let's say this together. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar in all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Well, joy may be hard to come by these days for some of us, and that's why we need to sing. We sing to express our joy to the Lord, but also to stir up joy for the Lord and in the Lord, and to remind ourselves and others that our joy is not found in our singing or in our circumstances, but in our God. So let's let this time, every flower we see, every ray of sun point us to our joy. And let's sing. Let's fill every room of your house this morning with your voice and with the sound of joyous songs to our God. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee, God of glory, Lord of love. Hearts unfold like flowers before thee, opening to the sun above. Melt the clouds of sin and sadness, drive the dark of doubt away. Giver of immortal gladness, fill us with the light of day. Praise him for what he's done. All thy works with joy surround thee. Earth and heaven reflect thy rays. Stars and angels sing around thee. Center of unbroken praise. Field and forest, vale and mountain. Flowery meadow, flashing sea. Dancing bird and flowing fountain Call us to rejoice in thee Thou art giving and forgiving Ever blessing, ever blessed Wellspring of the joy of living Ocean depth of happy rest. Thou our Father, Christ our brother, all who live in love are thine. Teach us how to love each other, 
lift us to the joy divine. Join the mighty chorus. Mortals, join the mighty chorus which the morning stars began. Father, love is reigning o'er us. Brother, love binds man to man. Ever singing, march we onward. Victors in the midst of strife. Joyful music lifts us onward in the triumph song of life. Joyful music lifts us onward in the triumph song of life. Well, oftentimes we let the cares of this world choke out our joy and hope in him. So let us confess that together. Won't you say this with me? Almighty God, we confess that we are still held back by earthly cares. We can't fix our minds and hearts on heaven. Lord, help us believe that you can abundantly meet our needs in this life and beyond. Lift our minds above these temporary perishing things and fix our hopes and wills on service to you continually growing in grace until we become full and complete in Christ. We long to lay hold of the eternal kind of life you've promised us and made available to us by the blood of your son. May our lives reflect the longing in our hearts, amen. Amen, and may our lives reflect the reality, the reality that we are not our own, but belong to Jesus. We are his and he is ours. Mine are days that God has numbered. I was made to walk with him. Yet I look for worldly treasure and forsake the King of Kings. But mine is hope and my Redeemer. Though I fall, His love is sure. For Christ has paid for every failing. I am His forevermore. us through the valley. Mine are tears in times of sorrow, darkness not yet understood. Through the valley I must travel where I see no earthly good. But mine is peace that flows from heaven and the strength in times of need. I know my pain will not be wasted. Christ completes his work in me. Hallelujah, it's true. 
Mine are days here as a stranger pilgrim on a narrow way. One with Christ I will encounter harm and hatred for his name. But mine is armor for this battle, strong enough to last the war. And he has said he will deliver safely to the golden shore. And mine are keys to Zion City, where beside the king I'll walk. For there my heart has found its treasure. Christ is mine forever. So come rejoice. Oh, come rejoice now, oh my soul. For his love is my reward. Fear is gone and hope is sure. Christ is mine forever. Let's believe it. Come rejoice now, oh my soul. For his love is my reward. Here is God and hope is sure. Christ is mine forevermore. And mine are keys to Zion's city where beside the king I'll walk for there my heart has found its treasure Christ is mine forevermore yes Christ is mine forevermore we give thanks to the Lord for he is good let us honor him as we should the lord has done as he said he would our god has done great things let's sing that again we give thanks to the lord for he is good let us honor him as we should the lord has done as he said he would our god has done great things let the redeemed say so let the redeemed sing out to the lord his mercy is here and will endure oh god calls us now to love you have done great things. We give thanks to the Lord and call upon his name. We sing to him a song of praise. We lift up our voices in this place. Our God has done great things. If you believe it, sing it out. 
Amen. Let's pray together. God, your word in Colossians 3, verses 15 to 17 says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness. Thankfulness in your hearts to God and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. God, thank you. Thank you. With so much else going on, Lord, I fear that we've forgotten to thank you in every circumstance, but we thank you. Thank you for your word, that you have not left us alone to figure out you or to figure out how to live in this life with everything that's going on. Lord, you have revealed yourself to us. You have given us your word by the apostles and the prophets. You have given us your word most clearly in your son, your word made flesh. God, thank you. Thank you for Jesus and for the peace that we have with you and with one another through Jesus that you've given to us by your Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Father, thank you. Thank you for songs that we can sing that help your word to dwell in us richly. We thank you for Drew Hodge and his ministry to us in preparing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that we might be able to teach and admonish one another, Lord, and we thank you that even though we can't gather together right now as a church, that we can still hear these songs, that we can still hear your word. We thank you for the technology that you have provided for this very purpose. And we thank you for Chris Sayers and Memo Ochoa who have been working so hard to make sure that we have this resource as a church every week. God, thank you for them. And I thank you that so many are watching these services, even those who have not yet put their faith in you, Lord, I ask that you would use this means to bring those who are watching into a saving knowledge of the truth. And God, we thank you that as 2 Corinthians 1 says, you are the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. God, we thank you for those in our church body whom you have comforted exceedingly. 
We thank you for those who still have jobs. We thank you for those who are healthy. We thank you for those who have a peace that surpasses understanding even in the midst of much affliction. God, we thank you for comforting them so that they can comfort others in their affliction, both in our church and outside of our church. God, we thank you for this opportunity to love one another as you have loved us. And we do pray and ask that our love and our good works would glorify you, our Father in heaven. And God, lastly, we, we thank you for Pastor Ryan. We thank you for his years of faithfulness and his diligence to study and to labor to bring your word to us even in this hour. God, I pray that you would use him and the proclamation of your word to comfort all of us with our greatest comfort that Jesus is coming back. And as Revelation 21 says, you will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things will have passed away. God, most of all, we thank you for that blessed hope. And we ask that you would help us to live according to that hope as we wait for it with eager expectation. We pray, come Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. God moves in a mysterious way His wonders to Steps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence. A smiling face, he hides a smile, and he's working deep in his darkened head and mind with never failing skill. He fashions all his bright designs. Works his sovereign will. Oh, fearful saints, new courage take. The clouds that you now dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. this God's purposes will ripen fast unfolding every hour the bud may have a bitter taste 
but sweet will be the plan. Mind unbelief is sure to end, and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter. Let us remember our song. Let me remember my song. Let my heart meditate all night long. I will appeal to the Lord. I will sing praises forevermore. Let me remember. Let me remember my song. Let my heart meditate all night long. I will appeal to the Lord. I will sing praises forevermore. For He is good. And he is right for he Thanks for leading us once again, Drew. You've been leading us around here for a long time now, right? Yeah. Why don't you put that guitar down over there and join me over here. You can join me at a safe corona distance. Yeah. Uh, you've been leading us here at Desert Springs for, uh, for 10 years now, as of April 1st. And we just want to thank the Lord publicly for that. We want to... Um, say thanks to you and your family. Uh, we're so thankful the Lord brought you guys here more than 10 years ago. Uh, you've been a good, a great ministry partner, a dear friend. I'm thankful for you, ma'am. Yeah, me too. Praise God. I'm thankful to be here. These have been a wonderful 10 years uh, for me and my family. So, Let me pray for you. Yeah. Give thanks to the Lord for you. Oh Lord, we're so thankful for the Hodges, for Drew and Chrissy and Bella and Priest and Cannon. Halliday and Arrow. Uh, Lord, we're so thankful for Drew's ministry to our church and in our church. Um, we're thankful, Lord, for how you've used him in, well, training our church to sing more thoughtfully and more fervently. Um, we thank you, Lord, for his shepherding ministry that extends far beyond uh, just songs and music. And Lord, we pray you'd continue to use him uh, here, if it be your will, for years to come. 
We pray, Lord, for your effectiveness in his ministry uh, in years to come. We pray, Lord, you'd keep him. We pray you'd cause your face to shine upon him. We pray, Lord, you'd lift up his countenance and you would give him peace. We thank you for your faithfulness to us as a church, Lord. Thankful for the body and its many parts and all that each does. Uh, We thank you, Lord, for putting us together in this specific body of Desert Springs Church. Pray in Christ's name, amen. I'd give you a hug at this point, but I'll just wave. (laughs) All right, well, we're in 1 Thessalonians 5 again this morning. If you would, turn there to 1 Thessalonians 5. And we come to the conclusion of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. Yeah, we're going to wrap it up this week. And let me remind ourselves of the backstory behind this letter since we're coming to the end of it. Let's not forget the big picture. And, and this will catch you up if you're just now joining us in this series and haven't been around for any of our study before. It goes like this. Paul and Silas and Timothy showed up in Thessalonica one day and they preached the gospel. And this is recorded in Acts 17 for us if you want to read it there. Some there were converted to Christ, some Jews, some uh, well-to-do Greeks, and that was the beginning of a church. We don't know how long Paul and his associates remained in Thessalonica, perhaps as little as three weeks, perhaps eight to ten or three months, we're not exactly sure, but at some point they were forced out. Uh, The persecution got severe and hot and nasty, and they were accused of being insurrectionists. They were forced out of town. Uh, And that meant leaving behind new Christians, leaving behind uh, a, a toddler kind of church. These are far from the ideal circumstances for missionaries and church planters. And what's worse The persecution turned on the Thessalonian Christians pretty quickly, and they were under the gun. And so you can imagine there's that nagging question of the Thessalonians' perseverance. Would they endure under these pressures, or would they buckle? Would their faith prove true Or would it prove to be the spurious kind, like the third soil of Jesus' parable? You know, when the heat comes of the sun and persecution arises, some just wither. Well, Timothy was sent back to Thessalonica to get a report after some months. And praise God, he learned that their faith is indeed genuine. They are persevering despite the remaining persecution And Timothy returns with that news to Paul. And Paul sits down, no doubt with tears, to write to them. He writes to them to give thanks for the genuineness of their faith. To communicate his fatherly care for them and concern for them. To explain his unavoidable absence for those months. He also writes to tell them of their ongoing need to progress in the faith, to pursue more purity and greater love uh, with one another. 
He, he writes to tell them of that need to be properly prepared for the coming of Jesus Christ. He tells them how to prepare, how to think about it. Through four and a half chapters, Paul's encouraged this young church in various affectionate ways. He has prayed for this church. He has instructed them about a few things. But quite honestly, he's painted with a rather wide brush thus far. At least as far as the instructive material goes. He's told them of their need to grow in their love for each other, but that's painting with a pretty wide brush. He's encouraged them about, uh, about some aspect of the Lord's return here and some other aspect of the Lord's return there and told them to encourage each other about those things. But again, that's painting with a rather wide brush. But right at the end, he pulls out a set of narrow brushes and he paints in short in bold strokes. Here's what I mean. Chapter 5, starting in verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. Surely he will do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Well, those familiar with the Bible and those familiar with what we call epistles, the New Testament letters, which this is, if that's you, you recognize that this is a rather unusual passage. It feels different. Here we find something like, depending on how you count them up, something like 17 exhortations. They're all very short. They're pithy. They're punchy. One right after another. It's rapid fire. It's semi-automatic. Maybe even fully automatic. It seems even somewhat off the cuff. It reminds me a little bit of a parent of a 16-year-old you know, someone with a new driver's license. And before they head out on one of their early solo driving expeditions, mom or dad has several things to cover. Remember to use your blinkers. Remember to, to get the mirrors just right. Don't forget about that blind spot thing. Don't speed. Keep your cell phone with you. Text me when you get there. Those kind of things. 
or, or think of a man, a, a mom or dad, making a note for the new house sitter before the family leaves on vacation. They might write, please get the mail every couple of days at least. Here's the key for the mailbox. The dog needs one cup of food two times a day. Please water the plants in the foyer. On and on it goes. And if you've written one of those kind of letters before, you know that it's not your best prose. You're not trying to win any writing awards. You just need to cover the bases. And those bases just flow off the top of your head in no particular order. Or another image I have in mind with this passage is I picture a jigsaw puzzle. A jigsaw puzzle of ethics and church life. And the box is opened and turned over and the pieces are dumped out on the table. And there are lots of pieces on the table. And each piece seems to be indiscernible from any others, at least at first. And it isn't clear at first how each fits in with a whole picture. Well, that's what the end of 1 Thessalonians can feel like, but it's actually not as chaotic or random or off the top of the head as it might seem. For one reason, as we'll see, there are sections here. We're right to put headings to groups of verses, as we'll do in just a bit. So this need not be, in fact, shouldn't be a 17-point sermon, one point for every exhortation. Also, these various commands all share this theme of being related to church life, what later Christians called body life. It's a compendium of many themes that are found in Paul's later writings and expounded upon at much greater detail. So what you can find in a verse or two in 1 Thessalonians 5 might get half a chapter or more in the book of Romans. It's about church life. And further, what we find here in these many exhortations is how these Christians are going to do the many things that Paul has already been talking about. So this is how they'll love each other. This is how they're going to encourage one another. This is how they'll pursue purity and holiness together. This is how they'll seek to please God more and more, as Paul said in chapter 4, verse 1. This is how they're going to persevere and persevere under persecution and trouble. This is how they together will be watchful and ready for the Lord's return. This is how they will live out the gospel together. Back to the issue of structure, what I called sections. If you look down in your Bibles, let me just point out, in verses 12 to 13, Paul focuses their attention on how they relate to leaders of the church. In verses 14 and 15, he instructs them how they should relate to each other in the church. In verses 16 to 24, the longest section, it, he teaches them ways in which they relate to the Lord directly in all this. And we'll see some subheadings in that section. And then lastly, the last four verses really just conclude things, like many 
New Testament letters do, here even summarizing some of those things. The first, let's start with this, it's our attitude toward leaders in verses 12 to 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. This is talking about elders or pastors, even though those two words aren't mentioned here. That's what is in mind. Those words elders or pastors, they're used interchangeably. In the book of Acts, it's, the, it's most commonly used there as, as elders. And we find even before uh, the, uh, the birth of the Thessalonian church, there was the Jerusalem church who had elders. Or in Acts 14, Paul circles back his missionary endeavors through the towns of Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch to strengthen those churches and appoint elders in each of those churches. Again, we don't read of elders by name in 1 Thessalonians, and we don't read of an appointment of elders in the book of Acts, at least not in Thessalonica. But whatever, however it happened, whenever it was, this church had these leaders, these elders, these pastors. Here, described in this threefold way in verse 12, they are those who labor among you, those who are over you in the Lord, who admonish you. Notice that they're plural in number. They are those, they. It's, it's not one guy. So at this church, Desert Springs Church, I'm the preaching pastor by way of a vocational title. And I do the majority of Sunday morning preaching here, but I'm, I'm just one of the elders. I'm just one of the shepherds. Notice here in the text that these elders, these leaders are both, it says, among you and also over you. The curious thing about elders is that they are also members. So that means that they're also sheep and shepherds at the same time. They're one of the sheep. They're among the people. And they are shepherds. They, they're to lead the people. Someone's got to go out ahead a little bit. And to do this, it means that they labor Verse 12, they work is the word in verse 13. Pastors sometimes get the half-joking question about what they do all week. Or the comment that it must be nice to only work one day a week. But almost all the pastors that I know are more closely to the end of the spectrum of overworking in, in a wrong way sometimes, than they are to the other end of the spectrum of pushing the boundaries of laziness and avoiding work. Elders have the weighty responsibility to lead, to give oversight to a church, to make decisions, to deliberate. Not easy decisions. Anyone who wants to be an elder so that they can have power or say or call the shots, that person shouldn't be an elder. They don't get it one bit. Decision-making isn't privilege or power, but a profound and weighty matter before God. They have the weighty responsibility to, at times, admonish or rebuke. 
anyone who desires to be an elder because they want the higher ground to be able to call out others with some sort of authority or to be an elder because they like confrontation. Well, that man should not be an elder. On the other hand, those who won't lead, they just don't have it in them. Those who won't labor, those who would never be willing to admonish anyone, well, they're not fit for it either. And I can tell you, Desert Springs Church, I can tell you that God has blessed us with a a pastoral team and by extension, uh, staff ministers and deacons and community group leaders who, by God's grace, are not averse to labor, who are not afraid to lead, and who are not unwilling, if necessary, to have hard conversations with wayward sheep. Oh, none of us do any of those perfectly. But on the whole, I can testify that our men do that genuinely. So how should we view them? We, myself included, as a sheep, how should we as sheep view the shepherds? What should be our attitude to such men? Remember, that's Paul's primary point here. So verse 12, he says, Respect those who labor among you. In verse 13, he says, esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, if things like that weren't in the Bible, I wouldn't feel comfortable saying them to you. I know things like that can be perceived as self-serving. It can sound like a CEO who needs flattering But this is in the Bible. It's not to be self-serving. It isn't flattery. You see, Paul goes on in verse 13, the second half, to give this extra word, be at peace among yourselves. What's that mean and how does it relate to what came before? Well, be at peace among yourselves, church, as part of your respect and honor and love for your leaders. In other words, make it easy on them by keeping peace as much as you can among yourselves. Conflict in the church is, is hard and heartbreaking. And yet if it gets serious enough, elders do need to step in and to help out to get people towards reconciliation. And so if Church, if you can keep those inevitable sparks between you and someone else from turning from sparks into a flame, well, that'd be great. And if you can keep the occasional flame from turning into a dumpster fire, that'd be really great. It reminds me of Hebrews 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The sheep are blessed when they are godly, and the shepherds 
only enjoy them. Now, that's not the whole of pastoral ministry because we're not in heaven yet. But that's the ideal. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning. That's what's the most advantageous to you. And Desert Springs Church, I want to thank you for your encouragement. I think our shepherds do not do this with groaning, but with joy. And largely because of your encouragement, your love and honor for us, your support of us, and your peace, peace among us. As Paul put it earlier in 1 Thessalonians, we see all this, but let's do it more and more. Let's not take it for granted. You're already doing this. Let's do it more and more. First, we need a right attitude toward our leaders. And then secondly, let's think through our approach to each other. Verses 14 and 15 begin to unpack what at the end of verse 13 got started. Being at peace with one another. Now, verse 14 and 15, what does being at peace with one another look like? Well, let me just tell you what Paul doesn't say. What's not here. What being at peace with one another doesn't look like is it doesn't look like sweeping things under the rug and pretending they're not there. It doesn't mean that we simply avoid the most annoying people in the church. Verse 14, we urge you, brothers, four things. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So let's just take this one at a time. There are some in the church who will be idle. As it says in the ESV, it probably can be better translated the unruly. So this isn't just those who were lazy or not working. That, that gets addressed in 1 Thessalonians and again in 2 Thessalonians. But this word specifically means the unruly, the rebellious, the disorderly. They need admonishment. So while elders admonish, that's one of the things they have to do. They're not the only ones who admonish. Where you can, where you see the need, admonish. Notice some in the church are faint-hearted and they need encouragement. Most of us in any given week feel at times faint-hearted. Think, just picture it, a heart that's fainting. It's almost fainting. We feel throughout the week at any given time the need for encouragement. This coronavirus crisis thing has us all reeling a bit. We could all use a little more encouragement and how sweet encouragement is when it comes. About a week ago, I was feeling discouraged, frankly. I was faint-hearted, a little overwhelmed. And in the mail came a letter from Macy Greeby. I believe she's fourth or fifth grade. I won't read it all to you, partly because it is far too kind and undeserved, and because if I read it all again, I'd cry again. So I'll just read for you the beginning and end. Dear Pastor Kelly, I'm thankful for the church and so thankful for you. 
Thank you for being my shepherd. It means so much. I'm praying for you and your family. Love you all. Love, Macy. And she has hearts drawn all over it. Inside one of the hearts, it says, you are family. Well, that was encouraging. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. Aren't you thankful when people are patient with you? In this last week, I, I did something to hurt one of my um, fellow colleagues. I didn't do it on purpose, but I, I needed to apologize. I felt bad. And he was so gentle with me, so kind. Be patient with them all. Take note that there are different kinds of people in the church. There are different kinds of problems in our church. There are different needs in our church. And there are different approaches that we can take to help those different needs. Part of what it means to grow as a Christian and as a, a church member is actually to grow in our ability and means of helping people of different problems in different situations. It's like we need to continue to add to our tool belt. Some of us are one tool people. You might have heard it said that, you know, to the hammer, everything's a nail. But not everything needs to be hammered. Let us grow in this. Every one of us, every member of Desert Springs is called on to meet these needs. They're one another's. We all need each other. We all need these things. We also are needed. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Thirdly, let's talk about our ways before the Lord, verses 16 to 24. And here there are three distinct subsections. Three W's will help us think through. We've got God's will, verses 16 to 18, God's word, verses 19 to 22, and God's work in the final three verses of this section. Doing God's will. Let's consider that. That's verses 16, 17, and 18. What does it mean to do the will of God in Christ Jesus? Paul tells us, rejoice always, Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Three powerful, pithy commands, all which ideally spring from the heart. They come from an attitude or a disposition before the Lord. Uh, once again, notice they're so succinctly worded. They're so simple in some ways and yet so profound and yet, rather lofty, possibly even intimidating. Rejoice always. Yeah, and keep in mind, this was written to some people who were really going through some suffering, persecution. They had lost jobs. They had lost money. They had lost the ability to buy and sell and trade. They had been persecuted. Not, not merely shunned by family, not to minimize that, but they had really been persecuted. 
And the command here to rejoice always doesn't mean that they should enjoy their suffering. No, that's weird. But they should rejoice even in and through their suffering or anything else. Rejoice always. Christians should rejoice. Christians can rejoice. Christians must rejoice. Christians have every reason to rejoice. Trying to think through reasons for rejoicing this week led me to Charles Wesley's hymn. I'll read some for you. you. Rejoice, the Lord is king. Your Lord and king adore. Rejoice, give thanks, and sing, and triumph evermore. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice. Rejoice again, I say, rejoice. Jesus, the Savior, reigns, the God of truth and love. When he has purged our stains, he took his seat above. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice. Rejoice again, I say, rejoice. His kingdom cannot fail. He rules over earth and heaven. The keys of death and hell are to our Jesus given. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice, rejoice again, I say rejoice. And pray without ceasing, verse 17. Now that doesn't mean do nothing but pray, as if that were even possible, but it means to pray regularly, pray routinely, don't give up on prayer. When this thing comes up, pray. When you feel that, pray. It's almost like, what what is the answer to everything? Well, in part, pray. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And as you do so, give thanks in all circumstances, verse 18. And here again, we recall that this is written to a suffering, persecuted church. And the Thessalonians were to be thankful even in those circumstances, in all circumstances. We are to be thankful in all our circumstances. In whatever coronavirus trials we know right now, whatever ones might come, all the things that Chase gave thanks to the Lord for in his prayer before the message, Give thanks in all circumstances. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Christian, we should memorize these. It's really easy. It's really easy. It's, this is some of the first Bible I ever memorized. Partly because someone told me it's easy. I had no idea how much I would come back to these three. I think of these three as like a, a triangle. There's unity in their threeness. This is about our disposition before the Lord. It's, in a sense, the ingredients for how we look at the world, how we approach life. It's our proper outlook on everything. It's not unrelated to what what used to be called practicing God's presence. Just going about our day, thinking through well, how God would look at things in responding accordingly. And yet it's not just an emotion, it's not just a feeling, it is something we do and consciously do. 
So we choose to rejoice, we choose to pray, and choose to give thanks. And it's something we do together. I've always thought that these are sort of good marching orders for any day as I go about my day. I've always thought these are things that I should do. That's true. But in the Greek, these are all written in the plural. Like in the South, they say y'all. We don't have that outside of the South. But in the South, they've got that you, plural. And in the Greek, they have that. And this is y'all rejoice, y'all pray without ceasing, y'all give thanks in all circumstances. It's something we do together. There's a sense in which Desert Springs Church as a whole, made up of individuals, making conscious decisions in each day to, to put our joy in the Lord now, to pray now, to give thanks. Yes, but as a church, we rejoice, we pray, we give thanks. And then part of our life before the Lord is the second thing here, verses 19 to 22, receiving God's word. And verses 19 to 22, all that's there, it goes together. It's speaking of the same theme. It says, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Let me show you how those go together, but we have to start by noticing that word prophecies. What does it mean, prophecies? Well, there are at least two kinds of prophecies in the New Testament. Perhaps more, but we'll just deal with two for this morning. There is a kind of prophecy that is extra-biblical, meaning it's not going to go in the Bible, but it is revelation from God. It's an insight. It's a word from the Lord, often given in a time of need. So Agabus, in the book of Acts, is called a prophet, and we read of two of his prophecies. In Acts 11, he prophesied of a coming famine. And then in Acts 21, he prophesied that if Paul went back to Jerusalem, he'd be arrested and turned over to the Romans. Now his advice to Paul was, therefore don't go to Jerusalem. And that apparently wasn't a word from the Lord. And so Paul went. But it was true what he prophesied that Paul would be arrested in Jerusalem. Now here in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 20, Paul could be talking about that kind of prophecy, the Agabus kind of prophecy. He could be. But there's another kind of prophecy. And sometimes scripture is actually called prophecy. So listen to 2 Peter 1, verse 21. For no prophecy... Old Testament scripture is what it's referring to. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's the doctrine of inspiration. It's the doctrine of dual authorship. It's called prophecy. Just like in Revelation 1 and again in chapter 22, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. It's not a prophecy merely because it was prophetic or future-oriented. It's a prophecy in that it's scripture. So my inclination is that Paul is talking about the latter of those kind 
in our passage of 1 Thessalonians 5. I think he's referring to Scripture. Now remember, Paul is writing in those days, long before there was a New Testament canon of biblical books. It was starting to be assembled, yes, but 1 Thessalonians is one of the earlier books. I think Paul's conscious that he's writing Scripture here, though I can't prove that to you right now for time's sake. But I think in the days before a New Testament canon, while Scripture was being written and other stuff was being written as well, you have to ask, how do you know what is the divine stuff and what is not? Well, you test it, Paul says. In fact, test everything. And then they'll have two outcomes, verse 21 and 22. You test it, and then hold fast to what is good, and then, verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. That's not just about morality. That's abstain from or flee or push aside every source of what is not good or evil, what pretends to be divine and is not. Well, how do we test it? Well, Paul doesn't say how to test it here. We can piece together some other tests. One test would be, is it consistent with the Old Testament? So the Bereans in Acts 17 received the apostolic teaching. It says, examining the scriptures to see if these things were so. That's good testing. Another test would be, is this teaching consistent with godliness or immorality? And Paul talks about those tests in 1 Timothy 6 and 2 Timothy 3 and elsewhere. Another test would be, does it come from a reliable source? That's why Paul often is willing to defend himself, sometimes to go to great lengths to establish and reestablish the genuineness of his apostleship and so that what he writes can be taken as true. And so another test would be, is it consistent with the apostolic gospel? So Paul can say in Galatians, even if an angel comes and preaches another gospel to you, which is not really a gospel, well, let him be accursed. So with those kind of tests in mind, you reread our verses. Do not quench the spirit. Don't don't push aside what is divine. Don't despise prophecies, but, but test everything and then hold fast to what is good and abstain from every form of evil. On the one hand, don't reject or neglect what is truly the word of God, like this letter. On the other hand, don't think that everything that purports to be divine is the word of God it isn't always. Paul can say in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 2, he says that a letter seeming to be from us had come to the Thessalonians, telling them that the day of the Lord had already come. A letter seeming to be from us. That is not the word of God. Abstain from it. Despise it. Hold fast to what is good. We might ask then, so what does that mean for us today? Now that we have a New Testament canon, the testing 
is a little more simple, isn't it? It's a little more centralized. We have a standard. We don't have to use the same test they used to establish the canon of Scripture. Now we use the canon of Scripture. So when we hear teaching that purports to be from God, we just simply ask, is this what we find in the Bible? Test everything. Do not take something to be true because I said it or because John Piper said it. Do not swallow something because you like the guy that it came from, because he seems nice or, or thoughtful or smart. Do not swallow something in because it sounds, well, new and fascinating and intriguing. No. Abstain from every form of evil. Hold fast to what is good. Don't despise it. Don't quench it. I think that relates to both the relaying of God's word, the giving of it, and the receiving of it. The giving of God's word should be tethered to the Bible. It should be richly biblical. It should encourage people to look down and see it for themselves. And the word of God should be received as the word of God, not selectively. When it is the word of God, it should be received as the word of God, not selectively, not, yeah, I don't know. That one seems optional. That one rubs me the, the wrong way. Keep going, what else you got? That puts water on the Holy Spirit's fire. It grieves the Holy Spirit. So this is how we persevere, the word. This is how we prepare ourselves for the Lord's return, the word. This is how we endure suffering, the word. This is how we encourage one another, the word. And then Paul launches into prayer, verses 23 to 24. He's praying for God's work. He's gone through God's will and God's word, and now he talks of God's work. Verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He surely will do it. If any or all of the preceding commandments felt daunting to you, and they should, this should be of great encouragement to you. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. That doesn't make the verses that came before go away. It doesn't remove them from our to-do list. It doesn't turn them into optional suggestions. No, but it still should be greatly encouraging that those lofty commands that we must choose to engage and pursue, they don't ride solely on us. They are not resting on our faithfulness, but his. If one day we stand before the Lord ready and kept when he returns, it won't be to our credit, to our glory, only to his. 
It won't be ultimately our doing, but his. He alone is faithful. He who calls you is faithful. Paul points out one point of the Lord's faithfulness. We can think of the Lord's faithfulness in his election, his faithfulness in promises of old, his faithfulness in the Lord Jesus coming, his faithfulness in his perfect living, in his sacrificial dying, in his glorious resurrection. He is faithful through and through. And he is faithful, he who calls you. That he has wooed you in. That the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection believed on for the forgiveness of sins. When that clicked one day, I don't know when it did for you, if it did. When it clicked, it wasn't because you snapped your finger. It wasn't because you flipped a switch. He did it. He called you. He's faithful. And he who is faithful to call you will see you through all the way to the end. I love that language of John Newton's amazing grace. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. He'll do it. He'll do it because in part he already has done it. Think of Jesus' famous cry from the cross. It is finished. And then he breathes his last. He will sanctify you through and through in the end because in one sense he already has. Sanctify means to to make holy or purify. to, To set apart for himself. There's a sense in which that's already been done. There's a point in time at which we've been sanctified through and through on account of Christ, not ourselves. It's a gift, it's grace. But but there's another sense in which he's sanctifying you through and through. He's purifying you more and more in your everyday actions and thoughts and aspirations. And then there's a final sense in which he will sanctify you through and through. Your whole spirit and soul and body will be kept blameless for the coming of our Lord Jesus. Friend, if you're not a Christian, I'm not sure how much of this makes sense to you or is even desirable for you. But we really pray that it would. We pray that the Lord would call you today. We pray that it would begin to click for you. Sort of like it happened with the Thessalonians as it describes back in chapter 1. They turned to God from their idols, their false gods, to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Perhaps even today, if you're not a Christian, you just say, you pray a small prayer. Lord, I want that. I want to be delivered from trouble. Lord, I want to turn towards you and serve you. Lord, I believe that Jesus died in my place and was raised from the dead. I believe, Lord, that you can deliver me from my sin 
and my guilt. If you believe that, call out to the Lord like that, he'll save you. And then lastly, well, we've just got in these final, final words, a summary of what he's been saying. I'll I'll put it like this. Our life together in grace under the word. He says, brothers, pray for us, verse 25. He says, verse 26, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Holy kiss? Yeah, that's not something we do in our culture. There is a cultural component to it. In the first century, Roman culture, kisses, likely on the sides of the cheeks, uh, that was something reserved for family. That was very intimate. That was close. And perhaps it, it took place when even two friends had you know, broken company and then reconciled, and there was a kiss and a kiss. And Paul is bringing that into this church. Apart from broken relationships and reconciliation, he says, just greet each other this way. Greet each other like family. Now, ordinarily in our culture, we would just talk about handshakes and perhaps side hugs. Uh, But in days of COVID-19, we're not going to kiss. And right now, we're not even going to hug or shake hands. For now, a wave and a really big smile will have to do. Or across screens, perhaps you, you know, joke about an e-hug. But the point is that we should think of each other and we should treat each other like family. He says in verse 27, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Read it to all who may have missed the first reading of it for whatever reason. And probably also this means to have it read among other brothers and sisters in the neighboring Macedonian regions. And then finally, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So there it is. Our life together in grace, under the word, until Christ returns in glory, what a day of rejoicing that will be. Until then, he's given us the church. He's given us each other. He's giving us, he's given us our marching orders. They're good. We need them. Let's lean into them. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you again for your word and all that it says and all that it suggests and all that it implies for our living and our dying and for eternity. Oh Lord, we pray you would apply these truths to our hearts as only you can do. Holy Spirit, you are a personal minister and counselor to us. So we pray, Lord, you would counsel us in your word. Convict where that's needed. Encourage and strengthen where that's needed. You've given us our marching orders, Lord. Put us to them and give us strength and endurance until we see you, Lord Jesus, face to face. Amen. Let us respond as we always do in uniting our voices like a holy army choir 
as Ryan just prayed, marching to the beat of the Spirit's song. Let us sing together. Oh, church, arise and put your armor on. Hear the call of Christ our captain. For now the weak can say that they are strong in the strength that God has given. With shield of faith and belt of truth, we stand against the devil's lies. An army bold, whose battle cry is love, reaching out to those in darkness. Our call, our call to war, to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor with the sword that makes the wounded whole. We will fight with faith and valor when faced with trials on every side. We know the outcome is secure, and Christ will have the prize for which he died. And in their sense of Come see the cross where love and mercy meet as the Son of God is stripped. And see his bones lie crushed beneath his feet for the conqueror has risen and as the stone is rolled away and Christ emerges from the grave this victory march continues till the day every eye and heart shall see so spirit come Put strength in every stride, give grace for every hurdle, that we may run with faith to win the prize of a servant good and faithful. As saints of old still line the way, retelling triumphs of his grace. Hear their calls and hunger for the day when with Christ we stand in glory. Well, these are strange days indeed, and perhaps next Sunday we will find it even a little more strange as we come upon Easter and we will not be able to gather together as many of us have done perhaps our whole lives. But we'll do what we can. We'll do what we've been doing. Uh, we will provide a, a worship service here on screen for you to partake of with your family. We would encourage you to do so and to do so thoughtfully, prayerfully, carefully, joyfully. 
we come to the end of 1 Thessalonians. Next week, we'll take some time for Easter to be at the end of John's gospel, specifically thinking about doubting Thomas, who maybe we should now think of as believing Thomas. After that, uh, in days ahead, we'll look to a group of psalms, Psalms 90 to 100. I think that's a literary unit. They go together, and I think the Lord will encourage us, uh, especially in this time in which we're in right now. As for Good Friday, we won't have a Good Friday service this year, but uh, we'll provide for you a, a devotional guide for you to do something specific uh, on a Good Friday with your family. And hopefully you've been growing in your own participation around the word and in prayer, perhaps also in song as a family, not just on Sunday mornings, but throughout the week. You can find other resources on that on our website in that COVID-19 section where we're keeping some resources related to the circumstances we're in in these days. Until then, let's hear this blessing again from the Lord through Paul in 1 Thessalonians. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen.